Welcome to the International Disputes Digest from CMS. Welcome, everybody. Uh, my name is David Bridge. I'm a partner in the disputes practice of the London office at CMS. And this is our first podcast in a series looking at topics in our latest uh, 2020 International Disputes Digest, which is our biannual publication featuring analysis and commentary on the major trends shaping the worldwide dispute resolution market. Uh, this first podcast is on a landmark case heard last year by the UKA Supreme Court, um, which has provided much needed certainty on a key issue of arbitration law, um, looking in particular at the governing law of arbitration agreements. Now here to discuss the case and its implications with me are Kushal Gandhi and Jess Foley. And Kushal is a partner in our finance disputes team in London, and he specialises in finance and fintech dispute resolution. And he's very experienced in both litigation and arbitration and has been recognised by the Legal 500 as a next generation partner for international arbitration. Jess is a senior associate uh, in the litigation and arbitration team here in London. She advises also on commercial and investment arbitration as well as litigation and has recently completed this comment to the London Court of International Arbitration, the LCIA, where she worked as counsel with the casework team. Now, before we get into what the Supreme Court decided in this case, Kushal, can you um, explain why it's important to identify the governing law of an arbitration agreement and why it matters? Thanks, David. Um, the, the governing law of an arbitration agreement will become a critical question when you're looking to resolve issues in relation to the validity of the arbitration agreement, or in fact, what is the scope of the arbitration agreement. And often parties end up having arguments, even before the arbitration has actually started, about whether or not a particular dispute can be referred to arbitration and whether or not uh, it, it would be a valid reference. Those questions will be decided by the governing law of the arbitration agreement. Okay, that's really helpful. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be uh, familiar with governing law clauses, which we tend to think of as boilerplate contractual clauses that one puts in a contract and it will then be governed by the laws of a particular jurisdiction. And Jess, why can't commercial parties just rely on those governing law clauses to govern their arbitration agreements? Thanks, David. So in certain situations, depending on how the parties have drafted their arbitration agreements, they may be able to rely on those governing law clauses for the main contract to some extent. And I think we're going to discuss that later. But basically, it's not a given that they can rely on them, unfortunately. And the reason for that is uh, what's known as the separability principle. And that's a fundamental principle in international arbitration. And it basically means that arbitration agreements need to be considered separately from the contracts in which they're contained. And the rationale for that is to basically insulate the arbitration agreement in the event that the enforceability of the main contract is called into question. But as a consequence of that principle is that the is that arbitration agreements may actually end up being governed by a different law from that governing the main contract. So where parties do not expressly choose a law to govern their arbitration agreement, unfortunately, you can't simply assume that the relevant law is the one that governs the main contract. And that's where you can run into some difficulty. Okay, um, so it sounds reasonably complicated and, and hopefully some clarity has been provided by the Supreme Court decision we had in October last year. But but Kusha, what was the approach of the English courts before that uh, when they looked at identifying the governing law of an arbitration agreement? 
So the traditional approach, uh, or sh- I, sh- I should say the approach before the Supreme Court judgment that the English court has taken, uh, has been uh, different depending on the case and depending on the judge in some respects uh, at the time. So what has, what has happened before the Supreme Court decision is there is a mix of uh, authority on this point. And in some cases, the English court has said that it's the law governing the seat, that is the law of the arbitration agreement, And in some cases, the conclusion that they've reached is that it's the law of the main agreement. That is the that is the law of the of the arbitration agreement. So in some respects, maybe this is why the Supreme Court thought this was an opportune moment uh, to to grasp this and and clarify the position for all of us. Okay. And um, what what then changed in October last year with the Supreme Court's decision, Jess? What what did they decide? So there's a lot in the judgment, but in a nutshell, what they've done is do away with the kind of simplistic or default rules that either use the law of the seat or the law of the main contract as indicators for what is the law governing the arbitration agreement. And what we now have instead is a really helpful list of nine principles that should be methodically applied to identifying the governing law of arbitration agreements on a case by case basis. So maybe if I run through the first four of those principles, Kushal can then take us through the final five. So the first principle is a preliminary point, really, for any people wondering whether the Rome 1 regulation on the law applicable to contractual obligations might apply in this context. And the answer is that actually it doesn't, because Article 1.2e of Rome 1 excludes from the scope of Rome 1 any arbitration agreements and basically other jurisdiction clauses. So the starting point is that the English common law rules for resolving conflicts of laws applies here, apply here. And the second principle, the next question is to ask what law, if any, did the parties choose to govern their arbitration agreement? And if they didn't make a choice, the governing law will be the law with which the arbitration agreement is most closely connected. But before going into that close connection point, the third principle focuses on the issue of choice. So in order to determine whether the parties have made a choice in their contract, the court will look at the arbitration agreement and the contract in which it's contained, and they'll construe those as a whole, applying the standard rules of contractual interpretation of English law. And the reason, of course, for applying English law is because that would be the forum of the dispute for claims issued here in this jurisdiction. But of course, if your claim is being heard by a court in another jurisdiction, that court won't necessarily be applying these principles we're talking about today. They might have a completely different approach. I think we're going to touch on some of those those approaches taken by other jurisdictions later. And then fourthly, if the court determines that there hasn't been a separate choice of law uh, for the the arbitration agreement, if the parties haven't chosen uh, a, a particular law to govern their arbitration agreement, but they have identified a Um, choice of governing law for the main contract, that main contract's governing law will generally, and that's the key word, generally apply to the arbitration agreement as well. And the Supreme Court's reasoning for that was that it would basically put that principle of separability too high. It would place too much importance on it, really, to say that a choice of law to govern the main contract has little to say about the choice of law of an arbitration agreement. And if you think about it, that that really just makes kind of sense. That's commercial common, common sense, because a lot of commercial parties, quite understandably, are unlikely to be familiar with that separability principle. And for them, to use the court's words, a contract is a contract. Those parties would reasonably expect a choice of law to apply to the whole of the contract, 
So going back to the first question that you asked me, what I said earlier, some of the time parties can rely on the governing law clauses relating to their main contract as being the governing law of their arbitration agreement as well. But that's not always the end of the story. So that's probably a good place to hand over to Kushar to pick up the remaining five principles. Thanks, Jess. Um, I, I'm sure our, our listeners, having heard Jess, may have thought, well, surely that's all very clear. And, and it would mean that the seat of the arbitration plays no role whatsoever in, in determining the governing law of the arbitration agreement. Had the Supreme Court stopped there, that, that may well have been true, but, but they didn't. Um, and what, what they went on to set out was a further set of principles that essentially bring into play the importance of the seat of the arbitration in determining the governing law of the arbitration agreement. Um, and where this comes in is that the starting point is that if there is no express choice of law to govern the main contract, it does not automatically follow that the, that the arbitration agreement will be governed by the law of the seat. And the Supreme Court was very clear in, in wanting to avoid any strong presumption in favor of the seat of the arbitration. Having said that, the circumstances in which the seat may become relevant are one, if there is a provision of the law of the seat, which indicates that where an arbitration is subject to that law, the arbitration agreement will also be treated as governed by that country's law. An example of that is section six of the Arbitration Act in Scotland. The other place where the, where the seat becomes quite important is what's known in English law as the validation principle. And what that says is that a contract should be interpreted so that it is valid rather than ineffective. And in this case, the Supreme Court majority recognized that this will require having regards to the words used in the contract, the surrounding circumstances, and the extent to which there is a risk that the arbitration agreement would be undermined if its validity and scope were governed by a different system of law than the seat. And for anybody that follows uh, arbitration law jurisprudence, I'm sure will be familiar of the case of Sula America. Um, and that case, what was said in that case was that commercial parties are generally unlikely to have intended a choice of governing law for the contract to apply to an arbitration agreement if there is at least, at least a serious risk that a choice of that law would significantly undermine that agreement. So it is that principle that again brings into play the relevance of the seats of the arbitration. If having done all of that, you cannot determine an express or an implied choice of law to govern your arbitration agreement, then the next question will be, well, which is the system of law with which the arbitration agreement is most closely connected? And again, in that regard, the seat plays quite a critical role because as you've heard from Jess, there is a separability principle. And if you don't have an express or implied choice in relation to the arbitration agreement, then it could be said that the arbitration agreement is most closely connected with the seat and therefore the law of the arbitration agreement should be the same as that of the jurisdiction of the seat. And the final point that the Supreme Court sort of wanted to emphasize as well is that dispute resolution clauses that include provisions for good faith negotiation or, or mediation or any kind of escalation before the dispute can be referred to arbitration will not generally provide a reason to displace the law of the seat of the arbitration as the applicable law to the arbitration agreement. Okay, thanks, Kushal. Thanks, Jess. So 
Um, I think that's comprehensively covered the English law position on this issue. And we've quite, uh, talked quite a lot about that. Um, Jess, how, how does this compare with the approach taken in other international jurisdictions, in particular, you know, the common law jurisdictions and the civil law jurisdictions? Yes. So as I mentioned earlier, the courts and other jurisdictions do uh, sometimes do things a little differently. So it's worth bearing that in mind. Uh, as you say, I'll touch on a couple of the common law jurisdictions, uh, Hong Kong and Singapore specifically. And then Kishar can take us through some of the civil law jurisdictions. So in Hong Kong, what the courts have traditionally done is look at whether there is an express or implied choice of governing law. And if they can't find a choice, they'll look into the system of law with which the arbitration agreement has the closest and most real connection, which probably sounds quite familiar, given what we've just been talking about. And in Singapore, it's ever so slightly different, or it has been traditionally. So where the parties have not expressly chosen the law governing their arbitration, the courts have traditionally held that the implied choice should presumptively be the law of the main contract. But of course, as common law legal systems, the Singapore and Hong Kong courts typically take into account not only case law of their own courts, but also that of other common law jurisdictions. And so they're probably quite likely to be uh, following the approach of the UK Supreme Court from now on. Kushal, how about the civil law jurisdictions? Thanks, Jess. Um, I'm going to quickly look at Germany, Switzerland and France in that order. Uh, so in Germany, the courts often apply the law governing the main contracts to the arbitration agreement. And whether that's on an analysis of an implied choice or a close connection test, it seems to be that that is the outcome that that is most likely in Germany. In Switzerland, however, uh, it's it's all about the law favoring the validity of the arbitration agreement. And in order to be valid, an arbitration agreement must comply with requirements of the law chosen by the parties to govern the arbitration agreement, the law governing the dispute or Swiss law. There doesn't seem to be any hierarchy between those systems. But in practice, unless the parties have made an express choice of governing law for their arbitration agreement, the court will assess the validity of the arbitration agreement uh, by reference to Swiss law. Um, and finally, France. Uh, the French courts apply substantive rules of international arbitration to determine the governing law rather than French law. Uh, those rules include, um, as we've heard from you just before, the separability principle. Um, and in a recent case, the Paris uh, Court of Appeal applied these principles in holding that in the absence of an express choice of law, the law of the seat applied to the arbitration agreement. So there you go. Uh, it, it, you can have differing approaches depending on which part of the world you're in. Excellent. Thank you, Kushal. Thank you, Jess. Um, you've taken us all around the world in terms of the key jurisdictions. Jess, can you just give us some um, key takeaways from all of this? Sure. So there are a few key points to bear in mind, both for people who are drafting contracts and for those who may be involved in a potential dispute that arises out of a contract that's already been concluded. So as we said a few times now, uh, bear in mind that separability principle. It means that it's not completely safe to assume that your arbitration agreement will be governed by the same law as your main contract. So if you're involved in contract drafting, it's important to turn your mind to the three systems of law that are going to be relevant to any dispute that arises out of that contract. So you've got firstly, the law applicable to the main contract. Secondly, the law governing the arbitration agreement. And thirdly, the seat of the arbitration. And in an ideal world, you would consider and express a choice of law or a place in terms of the seat for each of those three systems. And you think carefully about each of, each of those and the reasons why you would want to uh, select a particular law over another. 
But where we've seen issues arising in particular is where the seat of the arbitration and the law governing the main contract are different. And in that case, there is more likely to be some uncertainty around identifying the governing law of the arbitration agreement. So an example of that is, you know, if you've chosen Paris as your seat of arbitration and English law to govern your main contract, but you don't have an express choice of uh, governing law for your arbitration agreement. So in that situation, it'd be a really good idea to expressly identify in your contract the governing law of the arbitration agreement itself. And so that kind of brings me on to the, another key takeaway, which is the courts will um, first and foremost have regard to the party's choice. So you really can save yourself a fair amount of potential difficulty down the line by some precise drafting up front. And then for those who are involved in a potential dispute, I would just say it's really important to be thinking about this, uh, this issue at the outset. I know Kushal and I have discussed, <laughs> discussed this quite a bit, and we've said we would both want to be identifying that issue early on and formulating a strategy for dealing with it. So taking into account the approaches of the courts in the different jurisdictions, like the ones that we've mentioned, and anticipating arguments that the other side of the dispute might advance in light of the approaches taken in those jurisdictions, or if we're dealing with a dispute here, uh, the approach taken by the, by the Supreme Court in this recent case. So it's a complex area, but there are ways of navigating it. Thank you, Jess. Um, and thank you to you and Kushal for making this um, complex area a little easier to understand. Uh, and I'm very grateful for your expert analysis and explanation. Um, that concludes um, the topic for today. Uh, I'm going to be joined um, next time by colleagues from the Netherlands, uh, where we'll be discussing um, class actions and related issues, amongst other uh, matters. Uh, and if you do have any queries in relation to what we've been talking about today, please do feel free to get in touch with Kushal or Jess or myself, and um, you can explore and read about them in more detail in our Disputes Digest for more in-depth analysis on this topic and many others, as well as visiting our website, cms.law. Thank you.